today. And I want to talk about bringing down the walls. You've heard about the city of Jericho in the Bible. We're going to talk about that today. But I, I, I want to focus on another city and, and another area, the Portland area, the southwest area of Portland. That's us. Did you know that there are 1.6 million people who live in the Portland area? There are 1,700 churches in the Portland, Portland metropolitan area. And according to statistics, by these are provided by Mission Portland, there are 300,000 people who fellowship in those churches, those 1,700 churches. This is an area that needs God. Now, the 300,000 people out of that 1.6 million make up the church of Jesus Christ in this area. And this area needs God. Now, I know that God's interested in each individual, and every week we talk uh, primarily about you and your life and how God can use you and bless you. But, but today, I want to take it a little broader, like the song was talking about. And I want to talk about us reaching this area because I'm telling you, that is the heart of God. Not just that you're blessed, but that you're part of, a, 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 of an army that is reaching a world that knows not God. In Joshua 6 verse 1 it says this, Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Boy, doesn't it feel like Portland and this area? I mean, we're seen as one of the most liberal, one of the most unchurched areas in, in, in all of America. And it seems like a, a city that many would say it's tightly shut up, unreachable, don't waste your time there. I've had people say to me before, what are you doing there when there's, no, when there's not very many people who know the Lord? Well, where in the world do you think God sends his people? He sends us to places that are dark so that the light might shine. So the Lord speaks to his servant Joshua in verse 2 and says, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Now, I, I want to tell you, I firmly believe this. I believe it's easier to reach people for Jesus Christ today than ever before in the history of the world. I totally believe that. Because there's so much depravity, so much brokenness, so, so many wounded hearts that hearts are open. And now, much much we, we have much more than they had in, in an age before. We have the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers to lead us, guide us, and empower us to be witnesses. I think it's easier than ever because of those things. 1.3 million people need to be rescued in Portland, this Portland area. And there's a wall that the enemies tried to throw up to keep these people from coming to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now that almost seems impenetrable, doesn't it, that wall, when you think of that many people and you think of Portland and the history of this Portland area. But did you know if each believer reached just four people, we would win this whole region to Christ? If each of us, each of those 300,000 believers reached four people, everybody would come to Jesus. Let's pray. God, I believe you want to bring the walls down. I believe you're calling us to be a big part of that, Lord, and you're calling each of us to, to march, just like these people march, Lord, according to your orders. So Lord, Lord, would you illuminate your truths to us today? Would you give us, as Shalayan said, a burden, a burden, Lord, that's your heart for, for the lost, the wounded, and the hurting. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so to bring the walls down, I wanna just share a few things that I think the Lord is calling us to do. First, we must follow God's marching orders. In the case we're studying this morning, the leader got the idea that came from God. This is the way it works normally. God gives a leader an idea. The person who started SCT now got a burden 
and started something that's going nationwide. But he started with one, a leader that he gave an idea. Then he relates, relays it to the people. That's what happened here in this chapter. And the people then have to decide that they're in if it's going to work. God can give it to a leader, the leader can be in, but if the people aren't in, it's not gonna work. It's just the leader out there all by himself on a walk. That's all that is if people aren't following the vision of God. Joshua 6, verse three, march around the city. This, this was the plan, God's plan. It's what he told the leader. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast in the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. That was the plan. Jericho was a city that covered a little more than eight acres. We know that because uh, they've gone there and, and uh, archaeologists have discovered just the dimensions of that city because the walls collapsed. And by the way, uh, the archaeologists proved that they actually collapsed the walls of Jericho and there's no explanation. Well, the wall was about 30 feet high and 20 feet thick and considered impregnable. And, and really, the Canaanites... Uh, were pretty cocky about the whole thing, especially this city, because they, they thought it proved with this great wall and because they couldn't be overcome by the enemy that their God was greater than all other gods. That was part of the Canaanite emphasis. Makes sense that God would want to knock that wall down, doesn't it? Eventually, he knocks those walls down. The strategy of the day, if you're going to employ a good strategy to take that city with that wall, you can't scale it, you can't ram it down. That's why they felt so confident. And the, the military strategy would have been to, to, to do a siege, which means that you camp out, no one comes in, no one goes out, and you starve them to death, which could take, depending on the amount of food they had inside, months or even a year. So that would be a pretty slow strategy. And I, I just want to stop here and talk for just a moment about this for your individual lives. Um, sometimes you don't understand why God delays things and why it takes longer than you thought it would take. Uh, after all, when he gives a plan that says, hey, march for seven days, I mean, doesn't it make sense that God is God and he could knock it down the first day? Why do we have to march seven days? God is God, we're gonna believe God to be God. But listen, God does things in his time frame and his way. And a siege, when you don't follow God's way, a siege takes way longer anyway, right? So why not just buy into God's plan immediately you say, I don't know it. Well, pray, pray that he would show you. I promise you, God wants to show you the, his plan for your life more than you want to know it. And if you'll just say, God, show me. Show me what you have for me. Just like Shalane's story today, he'll, he'll, he'll put something on your heart that's his heart. But, but let's face it, marching around the city and shouting is not a clever military strategy, is it? I mean, it just doesn't sound very brilliant. We're going to yell and the walls are going to fall down? Yeah, right. Hey, God, any other idea? You know, is there anything else we could go with? But the man of God and the people of God didn't do that. God's plan always requires faith and obedience and patience. Faith, obedience, and patience. That's true for us as a church, schools, and a ministry. That's true for your life. Faith, obedience, patience. It's a, it's a journey 
And God wants us to enjoy the journey along the way. And sometimes we look so far ahead and we see what, what, what's not here. If I'm not careful, I can drive on this campus and I see, because I'm a visionary, I see more what's not here than what's here if I'm not careful. Because I, I have this sense of, of what God wants to have here. But at the same time, I don't set the timeline. I don't know if I'm going to get to be here to see it all. I plan on being here for a long, long time. God willing, at least another decade. But his plan, whatever it is for my life, for your life, always requires faith, obedience, and patience. Just be faithful. Just keep walking. After all, it's the Lord who builds the house. It's not our own efforts and brilliant strategies. Sometimes he'll have us employ a really weak strategy so he can show, you know, in our minds, so he can show that it's, he's the one who's getting this done. He's the God of the 11th hour. Quite often, ministries don't have it, don't have it, and they pray and they seek the Lord, and then the provision comes right at the end. Why? Because God wants to show he's the one who's doing this. This is his work. We must trust, trust him. Now, we get directions. This is the way it works in ministry. We get directions from God, and then we march. Let me just share with you a little bit of strategy that God gave this church. And what I'm saying here was true before I showed up. I mean, this church started under the ministry of of the Carlsons many years ago on on Sagar Church. It was a Sagar farm, that little cafeteria that you teachers meet in to eat lunch. That was a barn. And uh, it was built out by some of the believers who still sit here today. As a matter of fact, if you worked on the barn, raise your hand. If you, if you, okay. John, you are, the, you are, uh, you are just a fossil. What, I mean, you're the, you're the only one. But, but that's, that's awesome. So John, John, we talk history. John knows history. And I love John. And he's going to kill me. But, but that's all right. <laughs> but this was true before I showed up. I'm just telling you, uh, when God gives a strategy for a ministry, you... you for the most part, you stick with the original vision. And God's plan for this church has always included these things, genuine and authentic love of people. We like to say, we're everybody's somebody and Jesus is all. We care about everybody. Not just the rich, not just the powerful. We care about the waitress that puts the plate on your table that nobody ever looks in the eye. God cares. And God wants us to care with his genuine, authentic love for all the people that we come in contact with. God's plan has always been a relational style of teaching God's word. You know, I'm not a romper and a stomper and a spitter, but, but I deliver the word of God. And it's just the way that we're called to do it. I'm not saying it's the best way. I'm saying that's who I am. That's what the Lord's called us to. But, but that, that's probably what we're gonna be till he comes. God's called us to build schools to reach our community. Now, did you catch that? I didn't say just to disciple our kids. Although that is a major focus of our schools, discipleship. I said to reach our community. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. God's called us to reach out to the city, the area, like we talked about with Shalan today, the community, the world. We give a few hundred thousand dollars a year to missions. We send people to different locations. We believe God wants us to be concerned about his heart across the world. And some might say, you know, especially when it comes to schools, I have pastor friends that'll say to me, not a good idea to to build schools. I'll tell you what's not a good idea. It's not a good idea when you don't follow God's marching orders. (laughs) 
I don't get to say what we're gonna do. I, I mean, it may feel like that to some of you at times. But, uh, you, you know, I remember Candace came to me when I was um, pastoring several years ago, and she must have been six or seven. She said, Daddy, who's the boss around here? I said, well, Jesus is the boss. And she said, but who, who's the boss of all the people? And I said, well, honey, Jesus is the boss of all the people. She got a little frustrated. She said, Daddy, are you the boss? <laughs> well, in my mind, no, I'm not the boss. Now, I take responsibility and authority because if I don't, I'll be judged accordingly. I have to make tough decisions, hard decisions, but Jesus is the boss. He's the captain, and I'm trying to follow him. If I miss it, and I will sometimes, please understand my heart is always to follow the heart of Jesus Christ, and I want to have ready obedience if I find I'm out of step somewhere to get right back in step. But we have a call, and we have to follow the call that God's given us, and our call includes schools. We can't even talk about anything else. Not, you can't even bring it up. You know why? Because we already know our marching orders. They've been ours for 30 years now, and we continue on. God said to me when I, you know, thinking of these great leaders that were before you today in these schools, I've said this before, but some people are hearing it for the first time. So this is a passing parade. Some of you need to understand that. Some people need to hear it who've never heard it before. And let me just share it for a moment. I was sitting at my desk about eight years ago, and God spoke to me and said, I want to build a great high school to glorify my name. Now, it wasn't audible, but it was distinctly clear. So much so that I backed up in my chair and sat there and said something like, Lord, is that you? And I, and I felt like I, I felt that strong impression again. So much so that I said back to the Lord, I don't know anything about a high school. I don't know how to do that. And the Lord said to me, I know a little bit about that. And I said, well, Lord, if that's what you want to do, then, then I'm in. Because I'm, I just follow. Now, I can't make you follow. I'll tell you, it is my job to come before you to compel you to follow what I believe is God's vision. That is my job. That's part of it. That's what he's called me to do. But you're the one who decides if you're going to follow. And I'd never even try to force you. We all get to decide. But we started to move, and just in a short time, within, within a week, we had a million-dollar donation to build a new campus and start a high school. From the time we said, I said, I'm in, and then I went to the elders, and they said, we're in, and then a church said, we're in, and look what's happened. By the way, how in the world do we get in the Argonian, Oregonian rather, with all these articles, a football article in there this week, Dave Brown was quoted two, two weeks ago in the Oregonian. We get more press than any 3A school in the state, and all I can say is the favor of God. That's all I can say. I don't feel like we deserve it. I don't feel like we're better than other schools. I don't feel any of that. All I can say is thank you, Jesus, because you're doing something. And it's cool to see, to see what he's doing. Now, what are your marching orders? Maybe, maybe you don't know. I shared this story, but it, it works here, so hear it again for a moment. My son was about five years old. We were visiting a friend in Newburgh, and they got in a uh, tussle over baseball cards, and Aaron hit this little guy. And they, they bring him out, and, and I mean, not just hit him, he punched him, you know. 
He doesn't even like baseball cards. So I, I don't even know, you know, what this is about. And so I, I, they bring him out and the little boy's crying and he said, he hit me. And so I took Aaron outside and I said, did you hit him? And he said, yeah. I said, why? He said, because he, he took it. I said, well, it's his. But a five-year-old, whatever's in their hand is theirs, you know. And he, he argued with me a little bit and I took him out to the van and I was, I was gonna spank him. And I said, Aaron, I'm telling you, if you don't march in there and tell him you're sorry, I'm going to spank you. Now, I, I wouldn't hurt him. You should never bruise or, or, or wound in any, any way. But, but sometimes a, a little bit of pressure applied to the seat helps a kid not to do something dumb in the future. And, and strategically, it can be good. I know because my parents employed this strategy amazingly when I was a child. <clears throat> I said, Aaron, march in there. And he said, but dad. And I said, Aaron, no buts. You march in there and you apologize. But dad. I said, Aaron, March in there. And then he started crying. He said, but daddy, I don't know how to march. <laughs> Perhaps you don't know how to march. Maybe that's the deal. You're thinking, okay, I'm in, but I don't, I don't know how to do it. Where's my spot? How do, you, how do you do this? Let me read you an article from a young man that really impressed me. I don't know him. I just love the article. The article is called The Glory of Plotting. It comes from Kevin DeYoung, an author, co-author of a book, Why We Love the Church. Just, just think of that title for a moment, The Glory of Plotting. And consider this, what, what uh, Kevin DeYoung said. He said, it's sexy among young people, my generation, to talk about ditching institutional religion and starting a revolution of real Christ followers living in a community without the confines of the church. Besides being unbiblical, and this is a young man who's writing this, so it kind of makes it even more impressive. Besides being unbiblical, such notions of churchless Christianity are unrealistic. It's immaturity, actually, like the newly engaged couple who think romance preserves the marriage when the couple celebrating their golden anniversary know it's the institution of marriage that preserves the romance. Without the God-given habit, he says, of corporate worship and the God-given mandate of corporate accountability, we will not prove faithful over the long haul. And all I can say to that is after nearly 30 years of ministry as a pastor, my experience shows that last line to be absolutely true. When we, what we need, he says, rather, are fewer revolutionaries and a few more plodding visionaries. That's my dream for the church, a multitude of faithful, risk-taking plotters. The best churches are full of gospel-saturated people holding tenaciously to a vision of godly obedience and God's glory. And pursuing that godliness and glory with relentless, often unnoticed, plodding consistency. Now, just let me stop there for a moment. Not many of us can be amazing, but all of us can plod consistently. Every one of us, it's called faithfulness. He says, my generation in particular is prone to radicalism without follow through. We have dreams of changing the world and the world should take notice accordingly but, we're, we, but we've not proved faithful in much of anything yet. We haven't held a steady job or raised godly kids or done our time in VBS or in some cases even moved off the parental dole. We want global change and expect a few more dollars to the one campaign or Habitat for Humanity chapter to just about wrap things up. What the church and the world needs, we imagine, is for us to be another Bono, a Bono Christian, but more spiritual than religious and more into social justice than the church. As great as it is that Bono is using his fame for some noble purpose, 
I just don't believe that the happy future of the church or the world, for that matter, rests on our ability to raise up a million more Bonos, as at least one author suggests. And this young man says, with all due respect, what's harder, to be an idolized rock star who travels around the world touting good causes and chiding governments for their lack of foreign aid, or to be a line worker at GM with four kids and a mortgage who ties to his church, sings in the choir every week, serves on the school board, and supports a Christian relief agency and a few missionaries from his disposable income. Until, and let me bring it home. This is where the article brings it home. Until we are content with being one of the million nameless, faceless church members and not the next globetrotting rock star, we aren't ready to be part of the church. It's possible we talk a lot about authentic community, but we aren't willing to live in it. The church is not an incidental part of God's plan. Jesus didn't invite people to join an anti-religion, anti-doctrine, anti-institutional bandwagon of love, harmony, and reintegration. He showed people how to live, to be sure, but he also called them to repent, called them to faith, called them out of the world, and called them into the church. The church, I mean, I just don't hear young people saying this. This kid is profound. The church is the hope of the world. I'm telling you, I totally believe that. And I'm not just talking about our church. I'm talking about all the churches in this area. We are the hope of the world. You say, well, the church is not buildings. That's true, but it's all the people who come there. And the Lord gives visions and he sends them out. And, and, and you hear me say over and over again at the end of the service, what do I say? The service starts now. I've been involved in athletics all my life. And this, this to me is like practice. We're coming here, we're hearing, we're learning the strategies. We're gonna employ them so that we can have success. God, our leader, Jesus, our captain, has given us the directions. They come from the word of God. We get it in our hearts and we go out and then we're on. That's where it counts. The service starts now. Don't give up on the church, he says. The New Testament knows nothing of churchless Christianity. The invisible church is for invisible Christians. The visible church is for you and me. Put away the Che Guevara t-shirts, stop the revolution and join the rest of the plotters. 50 years from now, you'll be glad you did. Now I have said that some of you are gonna do great things and start ministries that go well beyond this church and I believe that. But most of us, most of us need to be plotting visionaries. And with the church and the schools, and really it's a church with schools, it's one ministry. It's not two things. We say church and schools, but it's a church with schools. We're one ministry with one heart that's supposed to beat the the direction with the marching that God tells us to march. We've given so many opportunities between church and school where you can serve, work, and bless that you you can join us here. You can join us in ministry here. You can get in line and start marching. What's your spot? I don't know. But I loved when one man was involved with setting chairs up Uh, He used to refer to himself at this church as the chairman of the church. And I love it because every time he put down a chair, you know what he thought? I am helping people come to Jesus and it's true. It's true. God wants Portland to come to Jesus. God wants the Southwest area to come to him. Ever heard of Ampliatus? Probably not. Romans 16, 18, greet Ampliatus, whom I love in the Lord, 
I just wanted to put that name in there because it's just a random guy that nobody knows anything about. As far as we know, he didn't do anything amazing. But the man of God loved him, which, mean that, which means that God really loved him because he was faithful. Colossians 4, 7, Tychius will give you a full report about how I am getting along. He's a beloved brother and a faithful helper who serves with me in the Lord's work. Tychius pretty much just greeted people on Paul's behalf and delivered letters. But he's beloved. Who, who, who said it doesn't count if it's what God's called us to do? Ask God what he wants you to do and then, and then join in and march. Are we willing to be an Ampliatus or a Tychius? Well, that was my first point. The next two will go fast. There's two more. We must show the love of God and have compassion for people. I know I mentioned this as part of what the church is called, but now I'm, I'm talking about our, our marching orders. It seems that much of the body of Christ has disdain for people who don't know Jesus these days as if they're looking for a better grade of sinner before they could come to Jesus Christ. You cannot clean a fish before you catch it. I fish, I like to fish. I've never been able to clean a fish before I caught it. It is impossible. We are fishers of men. People come to Jesus, then they get cleaned up, and sometimes it's a pretty messy and slow process. But it's the call of the church of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1.15, now here's a great man of God reminding us of something. Paul writing to his, a young man, he says, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. That's pretty much what Jesus came for. And that's you and me and everybody else. And I am the worst of all. You don't expect the greatest servant of the Lord who, in, in his day who wrote two thirds of the New Testament that we read to say I am the worst of sinners. But he was. He killed, he, he, was, he was at least part and parcel of killing Christians before he came to Jesus Christ. He was holding the cloaks and encouraging people to stone Christians to death as, as a leader, a religious leader, before he came to Christ. It's possible to be religious and not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and he had been that way. But he talks about himself being the worst, and he said, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Often I'll share my story about how I was a prodigal and went away from the Lord. And this passage is one of the reasons I do it. It's a little bit embarrassing to tell people what a great sinner I was before I came to Christ. But at the same time, I want everybody to know we're all great sinners. And, and Jesus forgives us and changes us and helps us. And he said, I want to be a prime example of his great patience with the worst of sinners. The others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. And that's why I share my story. That's why you should share your testimony. How does the Bible say we overcome in Revelation? By the blood of the lamb and what else? The word of our testimony. You were just a lost, wicked sinner before you came to Jesus. You say, I wasn't wicked. Hey, any, any sin is wickedness that separates you from God. And we were separated from God. We can't earn it. We couldn't deserve it. And neither can anybody else. So the church has to be really careful about the way we think of people who don't know Jesus Christ. I remember going to a school in Burns, Oregon. I used to be a district youth director for the Assemblies of God. And we did, catch this, these, these were cool days. We did um, 
over 300 assemblies across the state of Oregon in a five-year period where 3,000 students came to Jesus Christ. We would go in, we would, <clears throat> we would uh, have a speaker speak in an assembly, and we'd invite them out, invite them out to churches at night. And <laughs> it was just awesome. And, and um, it was a cool part of my life. But, but there was one story that really got me, and I want to share it with you this morning. There was uh, a location called Burns, Oregon. Anybody ever been to Burns, Oregon? Don't sneeze or you'll miss it on the way through. But, but it's, it's a cool area, and, and there's a pretty good-sized high school there, actually, because they you know, come from the perimeters and on in. So we spoke to uh, a few hundred students that day. Our speaker was speaking, and he was talking about drugs and alcohol. And he had a time where he had people share, in, in students, a bit of their story, which I'm telling you, sometimes students, when they, they have... We, we had the advantage of, of the Holy Spirit being in assemblies, even though we weren't mention, mentioning the name of Jesus. And, 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 you know, you come out, you hear about Jesus, but I'm telling you, kids cry, they don't know it. They never felt the presence of the Lord. In those assemblies, without his names being mentioned, Jesus' name being mentioned, they're feeling the presence of the Lord, wondering what this great love is, never had felt anything like that before. These kids are all being moved, and, and finally, he hands the microphone, they're telling their stories, and he hands the microphone to this kid who says, my dad put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger because of alcohol. And you could hear a pen drop. And the youth pastor beside me slowly started to cry. And then eventually he was shaking, so disturbed that I leaned over to him and I said, are you all right? What's wrong? And he'd had an attitude towards that kid because he was a mean kid. That kid had had several fights at school. That kid had been kicked out of class and out of school several times. And he sat there, and here's what happened. The Spirit of the Lord touched his heart to understand what God sees in that boy. How can that boy help it that he grew up in that family? Is it his fault that his dad was an alcoholic? Should we look down our noses at this kid who punches other good kids in the mouth and does really bad things, no excuses? And he said to me, that is the meanest kid in this school. But God caused me to see that it comes out of all that hurt. That kid and many others came to that rally that night and gave their hearts to Christ. I'm just saying Stop being political and start being a Christian. Hey, God uses politics. Yeah, and it's okay to be involved in politics. But Rush Limbaugh is not our leader. I just want you to know, if you're, if you're conservative, he is not our leader. Jesus is our leader. And Jesus came to save the worst of sinners. And how are they going to be reached if we're not willing We allow the unsaved to come to our schools, and it's unusual for Christian schools. But we have seen hundreds of families through the years, primarily from the grade school, now the other schools, because they've just cropped up in the last 10 years. Now the other schools, families come to Jesus. Last week, I heard that there were five kids in the high school accepted Christ. Our kids are being discipled. Listen, 
I don't know. I, I know there's less than 10% on unbelievers in the high school. Let me talk about the high school for a moment. Probably less than 10% unbelievers. If our kids can't live for Jesus in an atmosphere where there's 10% that don't know him, how are they going to reach the world and live in this world? I mean, here you can come and be discipled. Listen, they know they're going to, this is what they have to sign off on there if they're an unbeliever. We're going to talk about Jesus here. You have to be okay with that or you can't come. We're going to teach the word of God. That's what evangelicals are, by the way. If you look it up in the dictionary, it means Jesus and the word of God, that those are two things that are the most valued things among us. And they sign off on that, and then they have a code of conduct. If they break the code of conduct, we, we'll boot them because there's a sacred trust with parents too. So there's a, there's a holy tension here, we know, and it's not easy. But five kids came to Jesus recently. How many generations are we changing? And I, and I guess if that bothers people, then this isn't the school for them. I, you know, teacher or administrator or student. Because this is our call. I'm not speaking for other Christian schools. I believe God can do it a number of different ways, but these are our marching orders that God has given us. God wants us to be the place that loves people who are lost. Luke 15, so he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Now I'm talking about someone coming back to God. Did you know there's so many in our nation who knew as a child, but they're not, they, 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 they know the truth, but they've moved away from it, and, and, and they, they were in church, children's church, as young people, and this guy didn't feel that he was worthy to come back. I'm telling you, a lot of unbelievers feel that way. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate with the feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. Did you know? I say it quite often here. The Bible says that when even one comes to Christ that the angels in heaven rejoice. The Bible says right here that this guy who was lost, it looks like he took his inheritance, went out, was living wickedly in the city with prostitutes and all of that. And yet, and believe me, understand now, the father in this story is God. That's the allegory here. And God ran towards the one who'd made the mistakes. And God the father hugged them and kissed them and loved on them. But the older brother <clears throat> didn't want to have anything to do with it. Hey, why does he get an inheritance? Why does he get to be treated so well when he's done so many rotten things? Well, God is a God of second chances. Did you know that God hates it when his children are smug and self-righteous? I read this story this week and I liked it. Josephine was one of those people who didn't care to have sinners around the church. She became the self-appointed monitor of righteousness. You ever meet one of those people? Scary people. <clears throat> people didn't like her self-righteous attitude, but they feared Josephine because she was, after all, a major gossip. She made a big mistake one day, however, when she accused Fred, a new attendee, of being an alcoholic after she saw his old pickup parked in front of the town's only bar that afternoon. 
She emphatically told Fred that everyone had seen his truck and now everyone knew that he had a problem. Fred, a man of few words, stared at her for a moment and just turned and walked away. He didn't explain, defend, or deny. He said nothing. Later that evening, Fred quietly parked his pickup in front of Josephine's house, walked home, and left it there all night. <clears throat> you live by the sword, you die by the sword. That's the, that's the moral there. Have we forgotten where we came from? Grace, grace, grace. Titus 3, once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy and we hated each other. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, did you know I've not only needed that kindness and love and that forgiveness when I got saved, I, I need it every week, almost every day, I need to be forgiven. If we could be a church in schools where the love of God and the kindness of God is seen where people can grow in an atmosphere that's safe. I'm growing, I'm becoming, I think I'm getting closer all the time. I just can't get to perfection. I haven't been, I'm trying really hard. But the Bible tells us we'll never reach perfection. The Bible tells us that God reveals his kindness and his love. He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Let's remember where we came from as a church and the schools. Let's love people who don't know Jesus Christ. Third, and last thought here this morning, we must follow God's plan together and then the walls will come down. Now that's true for the body of Christ in Portland, but I wanna talk about this flock here, this family of ministries here at Horizon. Joshua 16 says, do not shout, don't even talk. This was part of the instruction from Joshua. Not a single word from any of you until I tell you to shout, then shout. I'm gonna speculate just a little bit here. Why, why weren't they allowed to talk? Because on what might have been a real hot day walking seven times around the city and then we're gonna shout and the walls are gonna fall down, it'd be real easy to start to criticize that plan. Wouldn't it? Turn around going, who does Joshua think he is? We're gonna shout and the walls are gonna fall down. Why do we have to walk seven times? It's not necessary. That's not even a good plan. I mean, that, I don't know, but I'm speculating that not talking helped uh, the criticism to stay at a low level, like no level. We don't have anybody criticizing right now, as far as I know. That is the honest to goodness truth. But I believe in prevention more than cure. And I'm telling you, as a church and schools, I, I believe the Lord is having me share this today, and it's for all of us. The church must love the schools, and the schools must love the church. Judy, I so appreciate your heart. 
George prays. And what, what are they saying? Do you hear the love for the church? Um, I, I've come across some people who are good people who aren't too excited about the schools. And you, you, you don't have to work at the schools. You don't have to send your kids. None of that's required. But don't you love the children's ministry and the youth ministry that are reaching people for Jesus Christ and discipling them? I know you love them, right? Why can't we love the schools when they're doing the same thing? Don't have to work in them. Don't have to attend. Not everybody's supposed to. That's a God deal. You figure out what God's saying for your family. Not me. We're trying to create an atmosphere where churches can send kids that God's calling here, but not every kid. We don't want the light coming out of Tualatin or Wilsonville High School. I mean, God, God does these things in his fashion, his way, but he does it in lots of ways. And we're one of the ways. Church, you need to love these schools. And for the schools, we need you to love us. You know why? Because we love you and we need to be unified. Psalm 133 tells us the importance of this unity and what happens. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. So what's this unity do? Skip down to verse three. Look at the middle of the verse. It's still talking about unity. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life, forever. When we're unified, an increased blessing of the Lord flows. When we're not critical of one another, when we're loving one another, unbelievers want to get involved in that. The Spirit of God flows more freely. There's not near as many problems to fix. There's always problems of some sort. We can't completely escape it, but if we just make a decision that we're going to love all the ministries here that God has, then God's going to command his blessing to flow. Joshua 6.20 shows us. Now we're talking about Southwest Portland because what, what are we talking about with these schools? We're talking about reaching Southwest Portland. What are we talking about with this church and ministries? We're talking about reaching this whole Portland area. We're talking about doing our part. If you'll join with us, and you'll get involved, I promise you, I can help you reach your four. We can help you get there. We can do our part. We can all be plotting visionaries. When the people, they, they marched, and when they heard the sound of the ram's horn, they shouted as loud as they could, and suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed. Totally idiotic plan from military strategy viewpoint, but it was God's plan because he was showing he's the one in charge. They were faithful, they obeyed, and they charged straight in and they captured it. I believe the Lord will help us reach this area. I believe it's easier than you think to reach this area. I believe God is doing some great things among us and every one of us can be involved. I'll close with this story. I was speaking at a youth camp in Wisconsin several years ago. And um, I took my young family uh, to one of the lakes. There's just lakes everywhere in Wisconsin. And there was a little town, I believe it was Wapaka, Wisconsin. And they, have the, they, they make their own beaches on these lakes and bring in the sand and then they have lifeguards. It just feels like a beach in California. That's where I was raised. But they have lifeguards and you know, all kinds of activity and there are hundreds of people out there at this little bitty town swimming in the, what looked like a community lake. It was just a lake that the community was swimming in. 
And so we're kind of having fun and there's a ramp out there and there, you know, it looks like there's a few lifeguards there because there's so many kids. And then all of a sudden, a whistle blows and someone yells, everybody out of the water, now, now. And then boom, lifeguards appear. And we don't know what's going on, but we know it's urgent and people are running out like the movie Jaws. They're just, you know, running out of there really fast. And I'm thinking, what in the world is going on? And then all of a sudden, it looked like 20 or 30 lifeguards. I mean, I hadn't seen them all before. Spread out on the front of the beach, they join hands, these lifeguards. I've never seen anything like this. And they started walking into the water, went underwater, and swam to feel the whole bottom of the water. And while they were under, someone said, there's a three-year-old girl who's missing. Her mama can't find her. And in, in, in less than a minute, they had scoured the whole bottom of that whole area that was roped off. And they came back up and said, she's not here. And then they found her somewhere. But I left that day totally impressed with the way those guys were organized to reach someone who was drowning, who might have been close to death. They were ready to rescue. Now, I believe the Lord would say this to us today. He wants us to join hands. He wants us to sweep through the southwest Portland area because he wants people to come to him. He doesn't want any to be lost.